our levels of anxiety that we're going to feel is the product of the loss that we fear times the avoidance we practice around that loss, right? So, and the only thing we can really change really is the avoidance because loss is inevitable in our life. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt, and I'm part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring and Soul Care, we seek to help pastors, leaders, really all of us, lead, serve God and others in the world around us from a well-tended inner life. And it seems like in the world we're living these days, anxiety is a pretty constant thread and reality. We see it in our students, we see it in our families, we see it in ourselves. And so today's podcast, I think, will be a very helpful one. Curtis Chang is our guest, and he's written a book called The Anxiety Opportunity. And it's an excellent resource from a Christian perspective about anxiety. Curtis is a public theologian. He's a consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School, senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's written for the New York Times, Christianity Today, and has appeared on CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, and so on lots of places, but he especially talks about his own journey with anxiety from a very personal and real standpoint in this book and in our conversation today. I think you'll find it really helpful, and I encourage you to lean in and let God speak to you through it. Curtis, thank you so much for taking uh, time to to meet with us or chat with us today. And um, as I said in the intro, this book, The Anxiety Opportunity, even just the way you framed it, instead of like how to fix your anxiety or what's wrong with you, um, <laughs> you know, how to get better, uh, just the opportunity. What what even the title itself, uh, what, what drew you to even that title as a way of framing yeah. this conversation? I think it was a way to reframe it from the anxiety problem, mm. because I think that is how we typically think of anxiety, that it is a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you construct anxiety permanently as a problem, well, then what do we need in response to a problem? Well, we need a solution. Right. And then, so now we're like, okay, I need the anxiety solution. And now in our Western technocratic uh, society, what is a solution that works? How do we know, what are we looking for as a solution that properly addresses a problem? And the answer usually is something, a solution that works if it eliminates right. the problem. Right. So we are now, once we start with an anxiety problem, we, are, we go down this path where we are looking then for some way to eliminate mm -hmm. anxiety, to make it go away. And that is really where I believe the, the, the church is, not helping it's mm -hmm. misforming um our people to be needing some response that may be sort of even associated with jesus that eliminates anxiety that makes it go away and yeah. uh so i wanted to reframe it because i think that's fundamentally leads us down the wrong path it actually ironically leads us towards more anxiety when we approach anxiety as a problem to be eliminated. Absolutely. In fact, um, I shared uh, on the intro that I, as a person that has dealt with or struggled with anxiety, even from my childhood, and I remember I, I was probably 10 years old when I memorized Philippians mm -hmm. 4. And, you know, don't, don't be anxious or be anxious for nothing. And so then, so to complicate it, or you said, like you said, exacerbate the problem is not only am I having anxiety now, I'm apparently I'm sinning. I'm not trusting right. God. And so yeah. now I, you know, I had guilt and shame to fear. And then, and then I think people that haven't experienced the, I would say the physiological realities of anxiety for them, maybe it is easier or simpler for them to say, well, I just gave it to God and I didn't feel anxious anymore. And so then we feel even more shame or what's yeah. wrong with me. So what yeah. what you've offered us in this book that is such a gift is honestly, it's the best treatment I've seen of the Philippians passages in particular. Could could you just kind of, you know, nutshell that you're a little bit, I would highly recommend people read it in the book, but how would you reframe 
the, that that it sounds like well it sounds like a command so if i'm worrying i'm sinning yeah. how could you reframe that a little well bit? one thing we know right away why it is not a why paul is not saying anxiety is sin because just of a chapter earlier Paul talks about how anxious he is in terms of getting Epaphroditus back to the Philippian mm. community. So clearly, if he was saying, you should not be anxious at all, that's a sin. It, it just doesn't square with the fact that he's just talked about how anxious right. he is, right? right. Um, so no, I, I think what he's saying there is, look, uh, yes, try not to be anxious, right? And and there is a way in which we're like, yeah, but it's not by actually saying it's a sin, but it's by actually a different way of being. And that is that different way of being is laid out in the rest of Philippians, which is that we are about people that are on the way. We are not and now and not yet people. Mm -hmm. And uh, but what that means then is that in this period where we are still on the way, we're going to experience all sorts of things. We're going to get we're going to get colds. We're going to get sick. Mm -hmm. We're going to uh, get get sad. Um, and all of those things are going to be things we experience and that we, we ought to actually have some response to them, but we shouldn't expect that they're going to be disappear or they're going to, they're going to go away. In fact, the, the reason why he writes, Hey, you know, the do not be anxious, which again is, is can be misinterpreted mm. as a, as it's a sin is because he actually expects that we're going to be experiencing this. Mm. So we do need a way to, to respond to it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny when you um, read scripture it's very important to read it in the right tone, right? Yeah. So if I were to say to my child, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. <laughs> um, that's one way I could say it. Versus if you can imagine with a finger, like lord over her with a finger wagging, like don't be anxious, you shouldn't be anxious. Versus if I got down on my knees, came onto her level, put my hand, arms around her and says, oh honey, don't be worried, mm. right? It's a different, it's a really different what, what those two convey, right? And I'm yes. saying that I think what Paul was getting after was more the latter. Yeah. And that that's an invitation that is, he's, he's trying to get us into our experience, just the way a, a sympathetic parent gets on our level and get, enters our, our level. Then probably the next question is, then why are you anxious, right? Yeah. And so, um, and that's really, uh, so, so, and, and so just to take that one verse and blow it out and make it complete. Uh, the complete end all and be all, I think, is a misinterpretation of scripture, which is why in my book, I'm trying to bring in other, I think, even more foundational scripture that fills out the picture of what the biblical response to anxiety uh, should look like. You really do such a great job with that. In fact, you talk about, which I think, you know, for some, it almost, it might sound like borderline heresy, like that Jesus experienced anxiety, that Jesus yeah. was anxious. And yet it's right there, right? It's, it's right there in the scriptures, yeah. right? Like it's, and it's, it was important. It was important for the gospel to, to convey to people that Jesus, when he was facing loss, the loss of all losses as he's headed to the cross, he was distressed. I mean, all of the symptoms of anxiety are described that Jesus goes through. Uh, physical distress. He's throwing himself on. He's feeling uh, alienated. He want, He himself is tempted to want to avoid it. So he's fully human. Mm -hmm. And so anxiety is a fully human experience such that Jesus, when in order to become fully human, takes it upon himself, which, which therefore should just be the decisive answer to is anxiety a sin? It, it's clearly not. It's part of the... It's part of the inevitable human condition because Jesus himself went through it. Yes. Yeah. Now, you know, we you you describe this as well that, you know, we live in such a, an anxious age. And in fact, that the, you talk at one point in the book about the levels of anxiety, particularly among adolescents and um, and young adults are uh, is, and it's been well reported are sky high and yeah. seem to be at yeah. really almost epidemic levels. And in yeah. fact, you, if I remember this right, you said the average level of anxiety self-reported by what adolescents, young adults would be the same at the same levels as people in a psychiatric care facilities in the 1950s. Did I have that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, you know, the latest NIH statistics, for instance, show that uh, I, I think if I'm quoting correctly, 57% of teenage girls experience anxiety or depression at a, at a clinically recorded, you know, sort of a clinically meaningful level at a disorder. 30% of teen girls have contemplated suicide. That's 30%. That's one in three almost, right? So that, that is comparable to what you would be hospitalized, what hospitalized people in the 1950s would be like in mental health uh, facilities. So, you know, that just shows you how, how much of a crisis there is and how, why we need to actually 
investigate, wait a minute, do we have this wrong? Yes. Do we have, do we, do we have this wrong? Because what, what we've been, what the standard responses, especially for Christians, which again, are either to eliminate it, mm -hmm. which is to, again, to either pray it away or to, even to prescribe it away. Right. Um, like those are the two options that we have. And right for the, for the churches and church communities that don't stigmatize anxiety in the ways that we've been mm -hmm. describing a little bit of a, uh, they've the other option on tap is then well I guess we just outsource this to secular mental health and we're just referring people uh, right. to, to prescribe it away either with medication or with therapy and let me be clear I think those are helpful things mm -hmm. I have taken anti-anxiety at medication mm -hmm. I've been in, in therapy those are helpful but even the secular practitioners of of secular mental health are realizing, you know what? We have overly pathologized mm. anxiety. They are realizing we've made it such that if you feel anxious, it means there's something wrong. And that is not actually, um, that they're setting themselves up then to also have to eliminate anxiety. And, and they're realizing, and I write about this in the book, that many of the leading secular mental health experts are realizing we, we actually have to help people feel anxious, yes. not avoid anxiety, not eliminate it from their lives, but actually to go through it. So it's actually some of the insights that of my book written really from a Christian and theological perspective are converging with insights from secular mental health. And and that's so important, I think, to recognize that, like you said, if, if yes, we live in a day in which we can, if we were to so choose, either medicate or self-medicate our way to feeling, frankly, nothing, right? We could yeah. get ourselves to numbness if, um, and that, that, but that that isn't uh, an ideal way to live, of course, but, right. but could you speak to, without getting into off into a sort of philo philosophical discussion, but would you say that we, there's something happening in the, in, you know, or more than one thing, but things happening in the world in which we live that, that is, is resulting in levels of anxiety yeah. being as high as they are? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the analogy I use is, is Hurricane Katrina, right? So if we were to ask why the catastrophe of Hurricane Katrina, and we think of the Hurricane Katrina as equivalent, as a metaphor for the mental health catastrophe that mm -hmm. is happening now, there's really two ways you can answer the question, why? Why did Katrina happen? One is why? Are, what are the structural high-level causes? Like you would say, well, there was, a, you know, high high uh, high weather patterns here mixed with climate change, injecting more energy in the weather system with this this tidal pattern, and it created all a perfect storm right. that was was Katrina, a Category Five storm, and that's one way you can answer why Katrina. But really, if you want to answer why Kat Katrina was so catastrophic, you have to actually look at the, the levees. Mm -hmm. It was because the levees collapsed. Mm -hmm. Because New Orleans is used to uh, storms. They're, it's supposed to be built to withstand storms. Right. And one of the ways it was built to withstand storms is that these levees were constructed. But the problem was the storm exposed the levees were actually poorly constructed mm -hmm. at the foundational level, mm -hmm. right? That's that's what made Katrina uh, the disaster that it was. So by analogy, I'm saying what this current moment, yes, there are external high-level causes of why there's more anxiety in the world. The best analysis I've seen of this is from Jonathan Haidt mm -hmm. and Jean Twenge, which argue that the confluence, sort of like, like Katrina, it was mm -hmm. a confluence of these, a perfect storm of social media, mm -hmm. smartphones, and, and dissolution of institutions that connect people, especially youth, to one another, right? So it's a sort of perfect storm, but especially social media and um, mm -hmm. and smartphones. And that's a, so that, that we can go down a whole other path sure. and say, why did that create higher pressure, like a higher pressure system, mm -hmm. right, for anxiety? But the, the question I'm trying to address in the book is, why did the levees break? Because we should... We're, we've had high levels of external stressors in our mm -hmm. world before. World War II, World mm -hmm. War I, the Depression, nuclear, the nuclear holocaust, right. the threat of nuclear holocaust, yes. right? Like we've had, the question is why did this storm uh, cause the damage it, uh, it did? I think you have to look at also the levees, which, and by that, I mean the spiritual structures, especially mm -hmm. speaking as a Christian, the spiritual structures we've set up to withstand, which in my mind, again, are fundamentally uh, kind of uh, misconstructed at the foundational levels because it is built on this problem solution elimination uh, sort of construction that leads us to think, okay, well then we build things, we're looking for things to pray it away or to prescribe it away. Yeah. 
And that does that is broken. That not that it doesn't have any value, right? right. Not that again, not that prayer or 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 uh, or therapy or medication doesn't have some role to play, but that fundamental construction is broken. And this is why in my book I'm proposing an alternative construction, uh-huh. which is really opportunity. It starts with saying anxiety is not a problem fundamentally. It has problematic aspects, but it is fundamentally an opportunity. Yeah. Um, and it is an opportunity. Then that leads us to question, well, how do I, what's the doorway mm-hmm. into that opportunity? And the answer is the doorway is Jesus. Right. <laughs> and what Jesus will take us through like a doorway, not a way, not around mm-hmm. that anxiety, but like a doorway through it, through the experience of anxiety. And on the other side, if we're willing to go through anxiety is actually growth, spiritual growth. That is the opportunity for anxiety. We grow closer to Jesus and become more like him if we are willing to not go away or around, like not to eliminate anxiety, but actually to go through it with and in him. It's um, it's such an important reframing I, I, in my experience. I, I too uh, experienced that um, hope or I, I don't know expectation that if i was doing it right whatever it was mm-hmm. praying enough yeah. doing the right things even with helpful tools that i could that anxiety could be eliminated rather than yeah. rather than saying what is the opportunity or even invitation within it i yeah. even had a uh, i'd had a therapist a few years ago say you know talk about this idea of befriending my anxiety and yeah, uh, and, right. and you talk about that actually it's I, I, I yeah. kind of kind of tongue in cheek, but it's really, I think, very helpful when you even began to talk about in your naming section of yeah. the book about about assigning these um, radio station call letters yeah. to uh, parts yeah. of your anxiety. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, it's it's exactly that. It's like, okay, if I'm not trying to eliminate it, I need to get to know it, mm-hmm. right? I need to know what, and, and I need to be a little curious mm-hmm. about, about my anxiety. So I started to do this practice where, and especially because my particular form of avoidance, temptation to avoidance is to think about it enough, to think enough and make it, I I go around and around it thinking if I think hard enough about it, I will then make my feared loss, which is the underlying driver of anxiety. It's it's some loss that we fear in the future that could happen, that I will think about it enough so that that future loss will go away, will be eliminated. And so because rumination is my particular and rumination is just when we are addicted to the same thoughts turning over and over in our head. I was like, let me see if I can like listen to my rumination. And so I thought, and I thought, well, it feels like it's a, it's like a radio station playing in my head nonstop. Right. So rather than trying to engage with it and try to like wrestle with it, like I'm just going to listen to it. And so my way of trying to listen to it from a detached, slightly detached, curious posture was to like give, give call radio call signs to it. Right. So I would, you know, if, if my fear was around work, I'd call it, okay, that's K work. That's playing it. Or, you know, K parent or whatever. Right. So just as a way to say, and and then I, once I could put myself in the posture of, okay, I'm not afraid of it so much anymore. And I'm not trying to make it go away. I can just listen to it. I actually found, I, I got insights. I got, it was, it was like, Oh wow, really? That's what I'm thinking. Like I tell the story in my book is like when I was in the middle of some parental anxiety, I realized that what was playing in my head was actually not so much like things about my kids themselves. It was, I was afraid what would other parents think right. about me or about them or really, it was really more about me. Well, me as, as a parent, right? I was like, oh my gosh, that's like such the, that's like a legacy of my Asian American, Chinese American upbringing, mm. which is so sort of face focused, so worried about what other people think. Mm. I thought I was like way beyond that. Mm. Like I thought I was like, I'm never gonna be a parent like that. Mm. And suddenly when I'm listening to K parent, mm. like, oh, that's in me, right? Yeah. And that then is an invitation. Okay, what do I wanna do with that? that? There's an invitation to growth there that realizes I need to actually be healed of and turn away from, repent of that way, that preoccupation with what other people think of me that actually turned out to be the underlying driver. Like who would have thought that my anxiety about my kids was actually my anxiety about what other people would think of me. But that right. that's, that was for, at least for me, that was actually what was going on. That was the driver behind that particular 
a radio station, but it took me like tuning in and listening to it more carefully. And and I think if we go straight to like, oh, we identify something and, and say, oh, I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't feel that or that's not good or or that's sinful even. It seems like we can go straight to then sort of shame and and guilt. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I hear in the in this kind of naming and you even reference kind of the, the Stockholm syndrome of over identifying yeah. rather than yeah. differentiating with that, that play piece yeah. in you. It, it reminded me a bit of, because we've had a couple of guests on over the, the last couple of years talking about like internal family systems kind of stuff, yeah, you know, kind of right. some of this yeah. uh, language of being able to say, yes, that's there. It's in me. It's a part of me, but I can actually turn towards it with compassion and, and curiosity right. rather than try and just shove it down and tell it to go away. Yeah. Um, that's right. That, that it's, it's a part of us. There's an anxious self in us that want, needs to be heard, wants to be heard. Doesn't, we don't need to give it control. Mm -hmm. We don't need to give it authority. Mm -hmm. But we can listen to it, and yeah. and 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 we can in Jesus we can actually pay attention to it, and and have we actually can have some authority over it. Like I've I, as I've done that particular practice, I've realized oh I'm increasingly better able to modulate it. Like mm. listen to it when I want to, not listen to it when it's not when it's going to actually distract me from my kids or my parents or from my work. And I can even start beginning to like turn the volume up and down. Yeah. Like I can almost envision like you know what. I can't make it go away, but I can turn the volume down mm. on that right now. Um, so those would be examples of some of the things that I talk about in the book that sure. actually are very um, uh, rooted in how, how how the scripture describes how we're supposed to relate with our inner being. Yeah, the, even the, well, I thought it was a wonderful section when you talked about naming in the sense that this is something that God entrusted to Adam to the yeah. to, to be doing this and that name, even when Jesus took his disciples and gave them names, it was a way of not powering up over them, but helping them yeah. giving a name that it did represent some level of authority and represented That's a right. way of, of identifying that. But it, with anxiety, I see it so much even through that lens of being able to uh, allow it to not have as much mastery or to, to give it space, yeah. but not, you know, control, if you will. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, Psalm 139 says, search me mm. and know my anxious thoughts. Mm. Like that's that, that the psalmist is recognizing my, know my, he's realizing I have anxious thoughts, mm -hmm. right? That's, and it, that's not the sin, but he says within my sin, mm. you may have a way to correct. You may need to correct me. Mm -hmm. I see if there's any correctable way or mm. offensive way is the, or idolatrous way. There's, translate a bunch of it but it, so it's not saying so it's that's as important to differentiate anxiety itself is not a sin mm -hmm. but contained within anxiety may be behaviors beliefs practices that do represent some idolatry mm -hmm. some or some mis misconception of god or misconception of the gospel that needs to be corrected so to give one example of that um you know one of the i think fundamental opportunities in anxiety is that it actually forces us to ask what do we believe God the Father is really like? Mm -hmm. And what has he really promised us? Mm -hmm. Because many Christians have come to believe that somehow the gospel is this grand insurance scheme mm -hmm. uh, uh, or a cosmic insurance scheme that is supposed to insure us from experiencing any loss, mm -hmm. right? So that's why I was like, if I'm afraid of loss, I should be able to pray and I'm going to pray it away. Mm -hmm. And the prayer is make, don't, don't make that feared loss happen, right? Right. And that, and then if you've lived at all a Christian life, you realize that does not work all the time. Um, that we we can pray all we want against the fear of this loss or that loss, and losses happen. Losses come. Yes. And so, and so that our anxiety is like an invitation. It's like, okay, you fear some loss. Mm -hmm. It's fear of loss of a job, of a relationship, of your status, or how you look in front of from the people. It actually forces or invites, I should say, invites the question, okay, is what you're after to make all loss mm. and all possibility of loss go away, to be eliminated? Because mm. if that is the case, then you've got actually, you are going to be disappointed. Um, because <laughs> Radically disappointed, right? Because actually, if you know the gospel, it's you lose your life to gain it. It's not like you're going to actually avoid death mm -hmm. or avoid loss. Uh, it's actually a way to go through loss. And death is just the loss mm -hmm. of all losses. It's, it's just the biggest loss mm -hmm. all there is. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a pretty profound question that we have to ask when we actually look at our anxiety and we think, wait, what am I after here? Am I after some scenario of life where I am guaranteed 
not to experience feared losses. Because, and, and I actually think many Christians who are church going, have a relationship with God, read the scriptures and so forth, deep down, they still have that conception of what God is supposed to do in their lives Absolutely. is to actually ensure and guarantee them from all loss. And that, as, as you said, once we have that and that we then are opening ourselves up to disappointment because that doesn't happen. Exa- you know? Exactly. In fact, I was thinking of, you know, so many of the, even the, if you flip on the Christian radio, you hear all these songs that talk about victory and, and overcoming and, 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 and I would, I, my pet term for it is an overrealized eschatology. That's you right. Know, That's we're going right. to get there. Yeah. We can get there now. And what, yep. what, what is promised for, as you talk about the not yet, we, we, if yep. we have enough faith or we, or we're pray right or do it right, we can have it now. And yet that's so at odds with the, actually the, you know, look, read the book of Acts or the life of Jesus. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, and, and so we, yeah, we, it is a setup. And I, and I, since we are talking a lot to pastors and church leaders, even to be aware that many of the people they're speaking to and are in their churches are, are carrying around an idea that, that, that loss somehow is, or the fear of loss is, um, it should be, is avoidable you know, that I can avoid yeah. it. And, and, and I, I love that you do a couple different formulas in the book. And I, I love yeah. um, the, the first one, your main anxiety formula is it's uh, loss times avoidance. And so, yeah. you know, and avoidance, like you said, I, it reminded me of the, and I don't know if you referenced it, the, the bear hunt children's book, right? We got to can't, it's, Oh yes. Yeah, right, right, right. Right. We're on, we're on a hunt. We, yeah, we yeah. Can't go around it. You know, we can't yeah. go over it. We got to go through it. And that's exactly right. And, that's exactly and right. And that's how we, yeah. and that's how we navigate, right. Go through it, but yeah. not alone. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But can you talk about what are some of the, you talked about the away uh, and around strategies for, yeah. um, can you speak a little bit about those in terms of avoidance yeah. strategies? Yeah. So again, the formula is loss equals, I'm sorry, anxiety equals loss times avoidance. Mm-hmm. So our levels of anxiety that we're going to feel is the product of the loss that we fear times the avoidance we practice mm-hmm. uh, around that loss. Right. So, and the only thing we can really change really is the avoidance mm-hmm. because loss is inevitable in our life. You know, at some point we are all going, we are going to lose it all. Right. Because we're, we're all going to die, right. <laughs> so so even it, it, at best we can at best we can try to postpone or manage it a little around the edges, but fundamentally, we are all going to lose everything. And I know that sounds like such the macabre thing, but it is actually the truth. It's I, it, the most and it's basic actually the of foundational. <laughs> it's the most basic of truth that the gospel is built yeah, on. Right, yeah. um, is that we are going to lose it all, and so the anxiety we feel is actually you take that loss, whatever it is, loss of my health, the loss of my productivity, the loss of my, of being, being, of being in a relationship, whatever. It's actually the avoidance that we practice that is, that actually produces the level of anxiety we feel because precisely because loss is unavoidable. Then when we try to avoid loss, we are trying to avoid the unavoidable. So, you know, what's a picture of avoiding the unavoidable? It's like the hamster wheel, right? Like mm-hmm. the hamster wheel that just goes around, can't get anywhere because you're trying to achieve something you cannot actually achieve. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening when we're trying to avoid loss mm-hmm. because we're avoiding the unavoidable. So that's why we get into these addictive patterns. And I, I describe them as usually people fall into two camps. They're either away or around people. And they, they roughly correlate to, are you in the fight or flight mechanism? Mm-hmm. Are you a fleer or are you a fighter, right? So uh, going away is you want to flee away from it. So these are the people who are like, you know, uh, I, I don't want to talk about money or, or you know, I don't want to go see the doctor. Mm-hmm. I don't, because I, I, they want to avoid the, the possibility of loss, right? Um, the around people are the hypochondriacs mm-hmm. uh, or the other people who are obsessive mm-hmm. about like always wanting to look at their, check their stock market uh, holdings because mm-hmm. they do they get whole round and round. Mm-hmm. And, and, and both are actually avoidance um, moves. What the funny thing for me is I'm a around person. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a ruminator. I go around, around. I used to always think, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm just confronting it. I'm dealing with it. Um, you know, my wife, who actually is more an away person, I would always be like judging her and like, you're just avoiding things. <laughs> what was really like kind of eye-opening was like, wait a minute, actually, when I'm ruminating, when I'm going around and around, I'm not, a, what I'm actually looking for is I'm turning this situation, this feared loss over and over in my mind, thinking that I will arrive with one final turn, a scenario that makes that loss disappear. Oh. 
But because that scenario does not exist, <laughs> I am like that hamster in the wheel. I'm turning it around and around looking for it. And why I'm addicted then to rumination mm -hmm. is because I'm looking for the thing that does not exist. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for this, this scenario that makes loss, the possibility of loss disappear. Um, so that's why, you know, the anxiety is the opportunity for us to look at our avoidance moves and say, this isn't working. Yes. <laughs> it's in fact bound not to work. How do I like let go of this? How do I have a whole, and instead the, the alternative, which I, I uh, you know, describe in a different formula, which is it's loss equals, I'm sorry, anxiety equals loss divided by, divided by holding. Yeah. And this is where we need to learn how to hold it or go, and holding is just like, I'm gonna experience it. I'm gonna go through it. I'm going to actually just, and I, and I, in my book, talk about the different actual specific practices that the Bible gives us to hold loss. Um, but, but, but that's what we need to learn to do. It's not to avoid loss, but to actually go through it, to hold it. And in fact, you know, I'm also a ruminator and, and I find, you know, sometimes it's, it's recognizing because this is where there's this tension because sometimes thinking about things and, you know, possibilities and all that there's in part is a gift to, to, you know, sometimes to make better decisions, to think through the possibilities, but where it can then spin into that is if, if I can turn it over enough. And like you said, and I can, you know, figure it out enough, eventually I can get to the, the ideal solution that will be perfect and avoid loss instead of embracing, nope, there is inevitable loss and that that, and that that loss won't destroy me, you know, that it, yeah. and um, I do. So I, I find myself, this myth of insight is another thing I, I, not that mm. insight isn't good, but it's like, if I can understand yeah. where my anxiety is coming from, if I can, I mean, yeah. I've read countless books and thought about it, prayed about it and all that. Yeah. And if I can figure it out, that can yeah. also eliminate it. And rather than yeah. saying- It's a form of, it's a form of trying to get control yes. over it versus experiencing yes. it and control. And the, and the control we're looking for is, is that technocratic elimination yes. of the of the underlying loss that we fear. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. And so it, this is where, um, you know, you say it will not destroy us. And this is where it gets like, where the truly Christian approach to the to anxiety has to go through the resurrection. Yes. Because that is actually the gospel's answer for loss. It's not, again, resurrection is not avoidance of loss. Right. We only can experience resurrection if we have died. Right. That's, the, that's the meaning of resurrection. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the definition of it. So what that tells us is we have to lose our things in life or lose life itself yeah. if we want to experience resurrection. And resurrection is when we the things we lose are restored to us. Mm -hmm. But that restoration is a restoration of loss, not an avoidance of loss. This very people get confused between those two things, right? right. Like so, um, and and so it's important to differentiate and say, no, no, no. The gospel does not promise avoidance of loss; it promises restoration of loss, which is resurrection. And, and I, I, but that that requires going through loss. Exactly. <laughs> so. I'm so glad that you took a couple of chapters. It was such a helpful. Yeah uh section on the resurrection that that it might seem counterintuitive to people to to to, uh, to delve as deeply as you did into the physical uh reality of the resurrection because i do think that there is a sort of um uh, way of thinking out there today and you talk about it from, from kind of platonic and um and uh, oh, I'm blanking. Epicurean. Epicurean. Yeah, some yeah, different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think there's yeah. almost this like, kind of like what I, you know, people have this image almost uh, or caricature of this Zen person, right? Who just yeah. sort of like yeah. nothing troubles them. They just sort of live above it all. And yeah. um, and and yet that is also loss avoidant, right? It's because yeah, it's like it's right. to, to not be touched by it. I just won't care. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, that, and yeah. yet that, in some ways, I almost see that being idealized. It's like, just don't let yeah. anything bother you. And, and yeah. yet you describe that. In, and um, can you talk a little bit about that, if you would? Yeah, that well, that goes to, look, you know, there's Stoicism, Epicureanism, yeah. and Platonism as were the three major... Right. Uh, options for dealing with loss in Jesus' day, and they are the three main options in our in our day. So Stoicism is roughly saying, "Look, do the best you can while you have it. You're going to lose it all, and so you know, just do the best you can. Yeah. Be moral, uh, live a good life, and 
live a live live a good life as, as best you can. But but it doesn't really have an answer for loss. Mm. It just tells you to look at it unblinkingly mm. and say, "Yeah, you're going to lose it all. So do do what you can while you can." So Epicureanism would be, "Well, enjoy life as much as you can. Uh, smell the roses while you yeah. can, right? Because you, it's all going to fade. It's all going to die. So live life to the fullest. Eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> eat, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. Right." Platonism, which is what we've been just talking about, is really, I think, is is uh, also, I think, kind of the forefather of a lot of New Age or, frankly, uh, you know, I think Hinduism is, is in some ways a descendant of Platonism. It's detach yourself. Mm-hmm. It's saying none of this is real. Mm-hmm. None of the, you shouldn't attach. This is all going to fade. You're you're just a soul, and so you're just going to float above it all, um, and you're going to be detached, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's the one that I think actually Christians are most get most confused thinking that act that's actually what Christianity is right. is like we're gonna float above it all right. we're gonna go away to heaven and that's not actually Christianity no. Christianity is actually very bodily mm-hmm. because the resurrection is a bodily resurrection it's not and it's and and it's about losing things mm-hmm. and, and and suffering and grief it's not detachment mm-hmm. it's actually attachment but it but once but but one that which promises us if we're willing to go through that loss not float above it mm. but actually go through it mm. then actually we will be resurrected and the things we lose including our body and our lives and our loved ones will be restored to us that's a very different promise than we will float away um you know kind of to heaven away from this all in a disembodied unattached um kind of reality um, and so, so that's another correction that we anxiety actually invites us to get really clear about. You know, it's really interesting. And um, my son, who's actually will um, edit this episode, and so he, uh, he'll hear this, but he also, you know, anxiety seems to run genetically in my family and all of that. But when he was a little boy, he struggled with the concept of eternal life and it actually produced anxiety in him. I think partly just yeah. this infinite idea and he couldn't get his head around it, which is, it is difficult, but I yeah. think perpetuated by, like you said, I so re- resonated, Chris, when you talk about, I mean, heaven didn't sound very appealing An internal worship service. One, they got long <laughs> enough anyway. You know, we're just, right. just going to yeah. sing songs, float around. I'm like, well, that sounds incredibly boring. And yeah. then I could do that for, I mean, maybe a, a few days, but forever. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's where the, uh, frankly, you know, when people talk about partying with their friends in hell, I didn't want to go to hell, but it sounded at that level, at least more. Heaven appealing. didn't sound that great. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And the reason, again, just to be clear, yeah. the reason why I wrote those chapters of trying to correct people's yeah. understanding of what the resurrection was as this, uh, what it actually is, is heaven coming to earth. Yeah. Jesus coming to earth to restore the things that are broken in this earth such that heaven and earth are re- reunited and our bodies are re- re- rejoined to us. So it's not floating away in the right. clouds in an eternal worship service. We're going to be doing stuff. Mm-hmm. We're going to, and we're going to be, we're going to enjoying stuff uh, yes. and stuff that we have lost uh, in this life and also through our death. Right. So it's, it's actually the great restoration mm. of loss. Again, the reason why I went into that is, is because that actually is the Christian answer to loss. Mm. Because if I tell people, which I do tell people, like, don't try to avoid loss, go through it. It's a doorway. Go through it. You know, the answer, the next question is, well, why should I go through it? What's on the other side of it? What is through that doorway? Right. And this is where we got to get then really clear. What is on the other side of that doorway? If you're telling me I got to go through anxiety as a doorway, a doorway of loss, uh, and Jesus is going to meet me at that doorway and take me through the doorway, then we need to know. We need to have a pretty good picture of what's on the other side of that doorway. Exactly. And this is why we need to get really clear about resurrection yes. and, and the restoration of all things. And, and you do a, a great job with it in referring to, of course, like N.T. Wright and and others. And then I, it reminded me also of even C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. the last book, The Last That's Battle, right. when he talks right. about that, that. That sort of so shifted things for me. It's like coming home to that which was familiar, but what that what was intended to be all along. So instead of going somewhere right. else, it's almost yeah. like coming home again or, or, yeah. or for the first time. And that, that's, that's right. so much more assuring. And I, I, that has been the only thing for me. And I think for, and, and that is also the only thing that Jesus actually promised and has sustained Christians through the ages is it's not, we're going to avoid loss. It's not going to, it's that we're going to have all things return to us yeah. when Jesus returns to us. Um, and that's what we long for. That's what enables us to go through loss. Can you talk a little bit about, because I was uh, fascinated too, when you talked a little bit about the um, the early Christians and the catacombs, because, uh, you know, I, 
I too had thought that was um, a place they went to avoid persecution, but you said actually yeah. no, there was a, more going on there yeah. than that. Can you talk about? Yeah, that? it's it's all the scholars have most of the scholarship has debunked now this notion that the Christians went to the catacombs to avoid loss, mm. right? To avoid the loss of their lives, their body, and so forth, because there have been a lot better places to hide mm. uh, than that. And what you actually discover is they went there to celebrate. Mm. They went there and they went there to have meals and to have worship services. And why there? It's not because to be to be hidden away from from the Roman authorities. That's not what it was. It was there to be close to the dead. They wanted to actually get close to the dead. And you go if you've ever walked the kind of that's how it's designed. You see these tables set up where they are, and it sounds macabre mm. to us because in our Western culture we have been so conditioned to avoid loss that we want to avoid death. Right. We want to avoid thinking at all about death, right? Because it's the loss of all losses. But the Christians were training themselves very differently. They were training themselves to be familiar with death such that they would actually have meals, meals with the dead, which some many cultures actually still do mm. that, you know, um, meals with the dead and with actually the, these mummified bodies right there. And say, and and then you see on the artwork, a lot of the artwork are images, symbols of the resurrection. So in that experience, they're training themselves to think it's okay to be close to death. Mm. It's okay to contemplate mm. death. And we can do it together because we have the resurrection. Mm. Because that's what this, we are all headed towards when all these dead relatives and dead lovers will be raised back to life. And we will party together. Yeah. And the, the meal that we're having right now in, the, in this catacomb is a preview. It's a foretaste of that final party, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when Jesus returns and we and 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 we are we are re reunited both with Jesus and with all of those who we have lost in the past, right? So that was the early ancient Christian's vision of how do you go through loss? Uh, it was to actually get closer to it, uh, be familiarize yourself, and cover it with the promise of the resurrection. these three holding practices that are near the end of the book and ways of, of navigating loss, which were um, a prayer, grief, and community. And, mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit more about grief, because again, mm -hmm. grief is something yeah. we, we struggle with. We want it to yeah. like, okay, can I give myself a, a day, a week, you know, kind of get, get, <laughs> yeah. get over it. Even we talk about yeah. that, which is another way yeah. of avoiding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, going through it or, or another way to say is holding it. How do you hold? So again, if the, I think the gospel formula is law, uh, anxiety equals loss divided by holding. So rather than avoidance, we want to learn how to hold. And one of the fundamental holding practice practiced by Jesus himself as he was facing his loss was grief, especially collective grief, but just grief. And, you know, that's why he wanted his, his friends closest to them, you know, sit here and pray with me while I grieve, right? Uh, while he's grieving. And, and what grief is, is just, it's just that it's holding it. It's not pushing it away. It's not avoiding it. It's saying I've experienced loss and I'm just going to feel it. I'm just going to feel it. And it's giving us practices, languages that enable us to say, this is real and I'm going through it. And, and, I, and, and ideally, I'm going through it with others because yeah. grief, there is, there is an element, which I think there's an inescapable individual element of grief, mm -hmm. but also grief is fundamentally also meant to be collective. We're supposed to hold our losses, not alone, but with others. Yeah. You did. Because especially because the others represent are meant to convey to us that ultimately God holds it with us. And this is a, a little bit beyond what you got into in the book, but I'm curious if we put that grief in even in community together. I know you touched on it a bit in the book, but but this idea that um, because we're in a culture, both inside and outside the church, that is very uncomfortable with grief, and mm -hmm. and 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 so people might find themselves hesitant to name or acknowledge that they're they're struggling, whether it's with anxiety yeah. or or even grieving something. And, yeah. and yet that's the very space in which they, you know, we all need others to, to be present to us and us to them. Completely. Um, how have you seen that, you know, lived out well, if you will, in, in uh, particularly in maybe in a church or a Christian context? 
Well, I would say a lot of it is not lived out well, mm-hmm. that we don't actually have uh, very good practices um, where, where we learn to grieve together well, right? I mean, it's the memorial service and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need long, we need more, more space, more time. Um, uh, you know, like the Jewish tradition, it does this so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Like when it sits Shiva, yeah. right? Like it's, it's a, it's a prescribed process, mm-hmm. not in one hour service, you know, like, you get, do your grief, get it, get it done right. collectively at least. Right. right. Um, and then after that, people are like, I don't know what to, how to talk to you about this anymore. Um, right. so yeah, I, I just, I don't, I, I think other traditions, mm. we need to learn from other traditions mm. on how to do this. I think, uh, like the Jewish tradition, which is our, you know, spiritual for, for ancestry. Right. We need to learn more about like, mm. well, what does it mean to sit Shiva, mm-hmm. uh, for us as Christians? Cause, cause it, that's it, grief is grief is a, we hold, we hold it over time. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, you, you write, uh, Curtis so vulnerably and authentically in this book, which is itself a gift. I mean, um, I know, and I know even talk about as a pastor, you know, I remember, uh, in pastoring, there were times in which I did, um, almost proactively, I guess I would say, I talked about my anxiety almost as a way, uh, I don't know if this was always healthy or not, but to say, well, I'm going to tell you that I deal with anxiety. So now, you know, now it's out there and hopefully you won't yeah. hold it against me. But, um, yeah. but you know, what what helped you to be able to be so transparent? So, I mean, you're, I mean, I talked to however many people are in front of me. I mean, you're talking to thousands of people that you'll never see and just naming some of the lowest points of your life in some ways yeah. uh, for them. What helped you to be able to do that? A lot of it, honestly, is time. Mm. Um, it's just, it, it, it takes time mm. to process it, learn from it, realize the opportunity of, of it. Mm. That is, um, you know, I think one, of, I, I know you have a lot of pastors that listen to it. I would say one of the, and I'm a former pastor myself and uh, a, a pastor that crashed mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, and became a former pastor because of my anxiety. Right. So, uh, but I, I would certainly not have been ready to talk about that uh, soon. I mean, in fact, I wasn't ready to talk about it while I was going through it, which is what made the anxiety even worse is I had to feel like how they kept keep it secret and suppressed mm. and, and so mm. forth. Um, but, but on the other hand, I'm not sure it's always good for pastors to very quickly talk about mm. it publicly either. I mean, I think if it's, if it's been processed, I think that can be helpful to not to normalize it, to not stigmatize it. But I, I know this is going a little bit off topic That's here, okay. but I, I do think one of the vocational hazards, occupational hazards for pastors is what I call strip mining mm. your spiritual life. Mm. Um, and by that, I mean like strip mining, like we, we have to, we're always constantly um, harvesting or, or, or mining yeah. what we're going through for some sermon illustration, mm. <laughs> you know, or some pedag- other pedagogical tool. I think that's really dangerous mm. uh, because we, we then it no longer becomes for us, but it becomes a tool that we're using. It, it doesn't become God's, working and gifting for us intimately, but it becomes some instrumental thing that we're, har- you know, mining and harvesting uh, instrumentally for our next sermon. I, I think something something gets lost, something dies yeah. spiritually when that happens. So yeah. so I would say for me, it, it's taken a lot of time and I really want to get to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that. Like this has been sufficiently processed and I've gotten sort of clearance in some level from the Holy Spirit yeah. to say, okay, now it's now you can share this now. Well, that's and, um, such a helpful yeah. word, not, and and not uh, about anxiety in particular, I think, but also just in general. And I think to yeah. to our to our you know our primary audience, but I think anybody that that uh, it, it, it and I've been guilty of it. I'm sure at times of saying you know the pulpit or in front of people is isn't the place to for me to process my stuff or just mm-hmm. back up my you know dump truck and say here you, you hold yeah. all this now, um, <laughs> uh, but. But rather, yeah, to have some let to let God do some inner work and stay in yeah. that, and and uh, not and not be too hasty to share that. Um, just because, and we need, know. and we need, um, we as pastors need others. Mm-hmm. We need, we need our own inner circle yeah. of folks that we can actually help us make sense to inv- help us listen to, investigate our own anxiety, and then when we discover it's actually some loss that we are going through mm. to actually help have, have us hold it together. It's, sometimes it can be with the wider congregation, but a lot of times it, it can't, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but we need, we can't do it alone. We do, we do need our other friends that could play that role for us. Yeah. Um, 
and so that's I think that's a crucial practice, and it's it's one I've tried to cultivate in my life. Yeah, and you do talk beautifully about that, even as well about just um, uh, the one last kind of question. There's so many things uh, in terms of the anxiety. You you talk in the book too about about your acceptance move, and I think this is so mm-hmm. so uh, wonderful. And so you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that and acceptance move. Yeah. So because there is so much shame uh, around anxiety, especially kind of, I think, in Christian circles, mm-hmm. because of this notion that it's a sin or a, or a character flaw or a lack of faith, um, I think we need uh, we need help in learning to accept our anxiety. Mm-hmm. To, so that, like you said, to befriend it, to be curious about it. it all, you can only befriend it, accept it, uh, be curious about it, go through it. Like all these are just words of... of that are describing, we're just, we're just going to experience it. We're going to go through it. Um, it's very hard to experience something if it's like we're ashamed of it. Right. So, um, we need some ways in which to actually accept the anxious self in us. And that's really what you see in Jesus. And I, I describe like Jesus with the leper, like it, it's a, it's a physical move he makes to reach out and touch the leper as a, as a sign of acceptance, as in a con- conveyance of, of acceptance, uh, even in his broken, you know, sort of state. Mm-hmm. And so we need, I think, moves that actually embody, and it, I think it's most helpful when it's an embodied mm-hmm. move that, um, that represents for us Jesus's acceptance of our anxious self. And, you know, so for me, it was this very physical move that came in the middle that I discovered, which is I just reached over with one hand and, and sort of, you know, very simply just kind of gently touched my left shoulder with my right hand and just patted myself and kind of patted and soothed and just said, it's all right, kiddo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all right. And it, I really feel like Jesus gave that to me. That was Jesus speaking and moving through my own body to convey that sense of acceptance. And I still do that, obviously. Uh, and I did it last night, as a matter of fact, <laughs> um, when, when I feel like I'm anxious and I'm, I feel bad about my being anxious, like, can I, can I actually receive Jesus's touch in through my own body and touching myself in some way that is like, is it's a move of acceptance it's very tender and and very moving honestly reading it i was like oh and you know it 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 so resonates with even other i think of ignatian spirituality some imaginative Mm -hmm. prayer different ways in which we we through our our heart heart's eye if you will of of Mm-hmm. Or I think Eugene Peterson said, uh, "Baptized imagination," you know, Baptized to imagine. That's right. to That's allow right. yeah. Jesus to speak to us and encounter yeah. us. Um, so I again could not recommend the book more highly, and I'm just so grateful. It is just such a gift to to people. And um, and if we can take just a couple minutes here, because speaking of anxiety, uh, the I, I find myself maybe uh, far from alone as we were recording this in the beginning of December uh, and we have a whole, almost a whole year ahead of us before an election yeah. next year. Yes. And uh, right. you talk about anxiety, man. I mean, I find myself like, can we just get, uh, can we fast forward to a year from now? Right. Cause I don't want to yes. like a lot of Americans, I think like, I don't, I just, I'm already weary and exhausted and anxious. Yeah. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about the other work you're doing with um, After yeah. Party and other work you're doing. Yeah. So I actually wrote the Anxiety Opportunity in 2023 as a setup in some ways for 2024, um, realizing that we were going to be as a church and as a country in ever increasing anxiety and that we needed, first of all, to have some gospel, some biblically uh, based, Jesus-centered way mm to hold our anxiety. So that's what the anxiety opportunity as a book. Um, now we have a, with my work with, um, in a partnership with David French and Russell Moore, uh, we're releasing, we've already released the course called the after party and it's, it's helping Christians move towards better Christian politics. And the book will be out in April. Uh, of this year, although you can pre-order it now mm. on Amazon, it's called the After Party okay. towards Better Christian Politics, and just in the same way that the Anxiety Opportunity was trying to reframe how Christians have been taught to approach anxiety, the After Party is trying to reframe for Christians how to approach politics, mm. and we're trying to give them a different way rather than one that is anchored on 
what we call the what of politics, mm -hmm. that, that Christian politics and Christian politics in particular is about this party or that party as the right party or this ideology or that ideology or this policy, or that policy. We're trying to recall Christians back to the how of politics. How do we do politics? Mm -hmm. Because we believe Jesus actually is much more clear on the how of politics, mm. things like love your enemy, mm. be committed to the truth, forgive one another, go the extra mile, serve one another. Those are all actually highly relevant to politics, yeah. uh, but but they are about the how, not the specific what's mm. of ideology, party, or policy. And so uh, it's a, it's another reframing yeah. uh, attempt because I think we've just like we got we have gotten way off. Uh, off solid ground in anxiety, we've gotten way off solid ground on politics. We've gotten we're such that we're even willing to sacrifice uh, the Jesus commands on the how in order to win on right. the what, right. you know, of politics. So we're trying to recorrect. We're trying to correct for that. So, so the book is coming out in April. People can pre-order it. Are there other are other are resources that you would recommend? Yeah, they can go. Yeah, they can go to after afterparty.org after hyphen party.org so after dash or hyphen uh, party.org um, and they can see other resources that we have including our central resource that is available right now which is a small group curriculum that's a video-based small group curriculum where david french russell moore and myself and, and an african-american pastor named charlie dates um, try to teach people and lead people through an interactive way uh, towards this vision of Christian politics that, that I believe is an alternative to the right and left, uh, red or blue alternatives that we have now. Not because we say, oh, this is the right way to vote or the right way to think, because this is the right way to be, to, yeah. it's the how. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they can check it out. I can, your listeners can, can check it out. Encourage if, if any of your pastor listeners are feeling like, ah, you know, my people are anxious and they're also getting formed by secular media more powerfully than they are by the gospel. Mm. And I don't know what to do about that. Mm. You can run this play. You can run the after party mm. play. Like the, the, my elevator pitch for what the after party is, what Alpha did for evangelism, the after party wants to do for politics, mm. right? Like just like we as, as pastors, if we know if we want to deal with like low evangelism in our church, we know we don't have to be awesome evangelists ourselves. We can just bring in sponsor in this great curriculum called the alpha, which mm. I think hopefully many of your listeners already mm. know in the same way, you don't need to be like a PhD in political philosophy mm. or political science to deal with politics. Even if you don't know quite how to preach and talk and, and, and you, maybe you may be even afraid with probably some good reason sure. to talk about politics on Sunday morning. Cause you know, you're probably going to get flamed by somebody For sure. on left or the right on Monday morning. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or both. Right. Um, just sponsor in this curriculum, mm. get a few of your small groups, mm. the ones that are most receptive, um, or you can lead one small group yourself. And then you can say as a pastor, Hey, I may not agree with everything that David Russell and Curtis says, but I think they're so worth listening. Like we'll, we, we want you to have some plausible deniability, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, and, and let them get mad at us, there you go. Uh, not at you. Uh, but then in the process, we can kind of bring in into, especially in, in the best context, which is not Sunday morning service right. in a sermon. It's in this face-to-face, interactive, back-and-forth uh, context of small groups, whether it's Sunday school or your, or your weekly small group or men's prayer breakfast or whatever. Get formation, spiritual formation around politics into those settings don't do it on Sunday morning, or at least don't start yeah. on Sunday morning with some sermon uh, that which you're going to be the have a big bullseye around right. you. Um, let, let us do the hard. Let us do the heavy lifting. Let us take the hits. You just sponsor us in through this course, um, and, and uh, if you trust us enough, and you can sample sure. the, the course to make sure that it's uh, it feels safe for your congregation. Uh, and so I'm, you can do that right now as pastors. You can go to after dash party.org and learn more about our course. And we'll, uh, we'll link to both Curtis's book. We'll link to after party and those resources as well in the notes, uh, to the show. And then also, um, also you're, uh, still hosting the good faith podcast, still hosting the good faith podcast every week. Come and listen uh, to what we're talking about at good faith. It's the podcast that's available on any of your major streaming services. Uh, every week we have a conversation on how to help Christians, 
make sense of the world. Yeah. Well, what a gift. Curtis, you are doing so many things and so many things that are so beneficial and a gift to the church and the world. Oh, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Oh, last, last kind of word, if you will. What, what is we, again, this, we are recording this and it's the first week of Advent and the theme of Advent yeah. this week is hope. What is, yeah. what is it that you find hope uh, giving to you in this season? I, I ultimately, it is Advent. It is that we have been promised that there is coming a day when the King returns and uh, all the injustices uh, will be addressed. All the pains will be healed. There will be a, when we discover there will be a balm in Gilead for all of what ails us. Um, and this is precisely the season for us to lift our eyes up from all of the headlines uh, and all of the uh, loud voices clamoring for us to vote for them or give money to them or all else or catastrophe will mm. result. It's like, let's, let's lift our eyes and our hearts and our ears away from that to Advent, mm. to the coming King. That, that's what Advent is. It's, the, it's to remind us and anchor us. I mean, there is a past celebration mm. of Jesus' birth, but it really Advent is, is just that. It is a, it's something to come. Yes. And then we are meant to actually lift our eyes up to something that's way above on a totally different plane yeah than the headlines and the politics of our day. It is that when the coming King returns to restore all things, if that is, if we believe that that is really what is coming, then we can face what is coming in 2024. Uh, those that, th these are, these are things that pale ultimate significance to the restoration that is to come when our King returns. So let's, let's reground our hope in that. Amen. Amen to that. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you for this time. Thank you for, all you're doing. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Richard. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love to serve you in any way we can at Wellspring. For more information about who we are and what we do, please go to wellspringca.org or look us up on Facebook. Just search under Wellspring. Until next time, grace and peace.